Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode, I give my thoughts on one of the works of Philip K. Dick. Today, I am continuing a four-part series on Dick's 1957 novel, The Cosmic Puppets. The Cosmic Puppets was the fourth novel Dick published. It is a fantasy novel with only a handful of science fiction elements. Really, it's about religion and deities and gods and, and magic. The plot surrounds a man coming back to his hometown named Millgate, after living in the big city for most of his life. He comes to find the town change and eventually learns that cosmic forces are doing battle using his town as the site of their struggles. In fact, it's none other than Zoroastrian deities doing this battling. And as I talked about in the first episode and then the last one too, I think this is the beginning of a new phase in Dick's career. In the first three novels he wrote, he was really looking at authoritarian politics and the ways out of it and the ways to escape it and about the frontier. In The Cosmic Puppets, we start to deal with, a, we get a, after this, we get a series of novels about false fronts and false realities. And so he's going to follow up The Cosmic Puppets with Eye in the Sky, which is also about changing realities and changing systems and shifting, you know, realities and truths. We get Time on the Joint, which is about it and then Man in High Castle, which does it. And it does it at different levels. Cosmic Puppet does it from the level of the town. Eye in the Sky does it really with uh, about ideologies and, and values. Time Out of Joint shows it being used as a means of kind of political necessity. And Man in the High Castle is kind of a macro meta-analysis of the whole question. Okay, in the last two episodes, I talked about how Ted Barton comes back to his childhood home of Millgate after leaving it as a child. His wife is disgusted that he comes, but he insists on the side trip to his hometown. When he gets there, he finds that the entire town is different at every level. Even the old buildings are different. I mean, the buildings that appear at that point to be old are, are not really don't, are new. So is it fake old or has he really entered a completely different reality? He asks around, but doesn't get many satisfactory answers. His wife, he leaves his wife off at a hotel, and then he goes back to visit a newspaper. And he looks up the date, uh, the date that his family left Millgate. And it, he finds reports of a scarlet fever epidemic and reports that a child with his name died on that day that he remembers leaving town. He decides to stay and investigate these strange happenings. He takes a room at a boarding house. He runs into a boy named Peter Trilling, who is the son of the woman running the boarding house, and he discusses his power to control clay and to control small creatures. We know that these this is something he really can do because it's shown that he's able to do that. In fact, he's one of two children who, with the ability to control small animals and insects and things like that. And the other is Mary Mead. And they seem to be playing out strange battles with bees and spiders. Peter controlling kind of the, the boyish creepy crawlies like snakes and spiders and rats and Mary controlling bees primarily bees Peter tells Ted that he knows who he really is later Ted talks to his wife who is committed to divorcing him for this preposterous side trip he's put him on she's he's brought her to Mary meanwhile spies on Peter using bees worrying Peter that he may have made a mistake 
Ted talks to the doctor, Mr. Mead, who's actually Mary's father, about the scarlet fever epidemic, and he confirms that, in fact, it did happen. Peter then directs or guides Ted out to the outskirts of town and shows him a giant man dwelling through the haze on the mountains that he can only see through the special glass. Ted, horrified, tries to leave town, but is stopped by Peter. And he's told by Peter that you're not going to be able to leave town. You can only leave if they want you to leave. And it's not answered who they is, who they are. He returns and goes to a dive bar. And there he finds a man named William Christopher, who seems to remember the past. And he, more importantly, he remembers the change. And he remembers how things was before the change. They get drunk together. And Christopher shows Ted how he can trans temporarily transform things to the original state. And he shows that with a wine glass that he transforms into a, a coffee grinder. And he explains that to do this, he needs a device that Christopher creates, but also that he needs, you need to remember what it was before. Ted then vows to restore the town using his, his ability, using this ability, since he remembers how the town was with an almost a near photographic memory. And the point I think Dick makes here is because Ted left as a child, he only had that memory of it. He didn't see the gradual change. And now many, like someone who maybe doesn't, who leaves their town and comes back 10 years later will, will notice all the changes because they'll remember only how it was before. But someone who lived through those changes and sees them, you know, there's a gradual. And of course, the change in this town was a sudden overnight change. But I think more broadly, how we experience urban planning, you know, if we live in one place, we don't see the changes uh, as acutely as someone who maybe was gone and, and returned after a big period of time. So anyways, what next thing that happens in the novel is we meet Mary. And this is a big, important chapter for Mary. She's in her room and she encounters a young wanderer named Hilda. Now, the wanderers, as I explained in the previous episode, are these kind of ghost-like entities who've just floated around. Now, everyone in the town who's not Christopher and Ted think this is perfectly normal. <laughs> they have ghosts wander through, uh, you know, buildings. Now, we didn't know we could talk to them, but Mary can. And Mary's talking to one called Hilda. And she tells Mary that they have mapped out most of the town, but they still need some information and additional power. They ask for her help in con controlling Peter Trilling. When she refuses, the wanderers threaten Mary. Mary directs the wanderers to pay attention not to Peter, but rather to the newcomer, Ted Barton. Mary sees one of Peter's clay golems running past her. So she manages to capture it. And she returns this figure to her room. And we start to learn a little bit about her powers here. She knows that Peter has this power to control these golems that he makes out of clay. But she also knows that his power over these things is temporary. And especially in her territory. So it's kind of like the town's been divided up between Mary's territory and Peter's territory. And if the golem's in Mary's territory, Peter will gradually lose her his hold over it. So she basically grabs it and claims it and... The power, Peter's power over it will die over time. So she experiments with creating her own golem avatar. And she walks out with this completed avatar of herself in her pocket. And it's, it's kind of bizarre. She actually is able to put her consciousness into this avatar. And she has this whole way she goes through this where she actually paints herself as she gets naked, actually. And she paints herself as this avatar. And then she makes the avatar and the avatar is able to go out and it's all really bizarre stuff. But it's, it allows Mary to become a spy into Peter's side of the town and she's able to use Peter's own weapons against him in this way.
So at the park, she sees two men she assumes to be drunks. On closer inspection, they turn out to be Ted Barton and William Christopher. And what they're doing is they're kind of working at restoring the park to how it used to be. And they eventually start to do this after some trial and error. And it's kind of a comic relief moment of the of the book because you basically have these two people who've been drinking a lot and saying crazy stuff about like, that used to be a cannon. Let's put it back. And, well, you know, the park benches actually were here. And this was a this was grass. This wasn't there. And it's really kind of humorous as they're kind of because from an outside perspective, they would just look like a bunch of crazy guys. Um, but actually what they're doing is they're able to effectively begin to restore the town and especially this park. So this park gets restored and Mary sees this and she realizes that it's time to reveal herself to the newcomers because the, he really does seem to have some power to restore this town to how it was before. Now, there's some moral questions that get into place here because by changing the town, if they're able to take it back to the old way, you know, by now you probably guess the wanderers, these ghost-like entities are the old residents of the town. What happens to the new residents, the people who don't remember the change, who were kind of brought in with this new town? They don't remember the old town. They don't have a more a intimate connection to it. And if the town's restored, they kind of lose their life and their existence. Is it right to do that? Right? And that's a question I think we have to with urban planning too. Like, yes, urban planning is very destructive. You know, we tear down a neighborhood to build some new buildings, new apartments, but that in its own way creates new communities and new experiences and new lives for people. And so is it's not ethical to then go back to how it was, right? It's, it's like a lot of nostalgia. And then we, we get, a, you know, the kind of, uh, kind of uh, icky nostalgia for the past when we do that. That doesn't mean the transformation wasn't initially destructive. It just means, you know, we, we don't, don't necessarily want to go back. Like think of Times Square, right? Like Times Square was something before it got Disneyfied. It doesn't mean that we should tear down Times Square and bring back the porno district, whatever it was before Disney. It's, it's also like the moral dilemma we had in John's world, which is a short story, a relatively lengthy one Dick wrote earlier, which is about a world that's been totally devastated by war. And through a changing uh, a kind of with time travel, they're able to change certain events and stop the war and stop this horrible future. But what's created out of it means a lot of people who, you know, grew up, including children, you know, aren't going to have their existence anymore. They've been kind of, you know, wished out of existence. And that's going to happen to the people of the town if Ted and William are successful in restoring the town. And I guess we got to think about what's Ted's motives here. Uh, of course, he wants to get out. That's part of it. But beyond that, it's not really clear why Ted cares that this town he hasn't been at and, you know, been to in 15 years or something is, you know, is different. Okay. Um, eventually, Ted recognizes Mary. So Mary comes out and she's herself now. And she, she's, she recognize, he recognizes Mary from before he saw these kids playing and she talks to Barton and William Christopher about how they restored the park and she warns them not to go to the boarding house since Peter will be there but instead they should go to Shady House which is on the other side of the line and so go there don't don't stay in the boarding house 
So Barton and Christopher leave to go to the shady house and Mary becomes worried that Peter will soon realize that his golem has been taken. So this is when she uses the golem as an avatar to actually approach the barn where Peter often does his work. And we saw Peter talk to his animals and rats and spiders and things before. So now that she's in this golem form, she's able to to set up in the barn and, and hide there. Mary decides to head towards an all-night cafe since it's going to be a while for her avatar to witness anything important. So like her, I don't know, like her consciousness is split here. Like it's in her body and it's also in this avatar. So she's kind of in two places at once. And she, it turns out she's a divine character. So that's how she can do this. But she's got her kind of mind in two places. She's got part of it is on the golem in the barn, which she's kind of running as an avatar. And then, you know, that's, and then she's also just at a cafe and she's just waiting. But while she's, or she's heading towards the cafe and while she gets there she's attacked by spiders rats and snakes and they actually devour her and it's a pretty gruesome passage where we witness mary being slowly picked apart and eaten by all of peter's creatures so peter's able to use his creatures to defeat his enemy now mary's consciousness is still in the avatar it seems and that will be revealed a little bit later on so now back to Barton and Christopher. They, they go to Dr. Mead's house first and he greets them with a gloated gun. And he asks, where's Mary? And he's worried about Mary. Mead was out looking for Mary and he noticed that the park had changed. Mead seems to know some of what's going on here and he lets them know that they have achieved something that the Wanderers have been unable to for a long time. So we learned that, and we've got, we had a hint of this before when the Wanderers talked to Mary, that they have been trying to recreate the town a bit at a time, but they haven't been very effective in doing it for whatever reason. Mead, though, really questions Christopher and Barton's motives and goes back to this question of what are the consequences of bringing the old town back? It means the people of the town, those who didn't exist before the change, would cease to exist. They, they'd be gone, and that'd be, was is that murder? It's, it's a really profound question a moral just question that is you know i think dick kind of dodges it at the end of the day but it's there and it's something that that mead brings up whatever caused the change right how devastating it is how vile it was how despicable the original act may have been the, the reality that's emerged out of it is a re, is reality for so many people and for that whole town and it has a life of its own now even if it is degraded and worse in some ways it's still a life mead also reveals that the changed town is a result of a cosmic battle between ormaz the builder and ahriman the wrecker and here it's revealed that we're in the domain of these zoroastrian deities so if you don't know the basics of zoroastrianism you know, and kind of in the history of religion, Zoroastrianism is seen as the faith that kind of opened the door to to monotheism. It didn't quite get there, but it condensed all the many gods that a lot of earlier traditions had into just two. One is kind of the creator and sustainer god, um, Ahura Mazda or Ormazd. And then Ahriman, like the bad guy, the, the destroyer. And they're kind of equals. Now, the belief is that we should serve the builder, creator, sustainer, God, the good God, and eventually he will win out in the end. The bad guy will lose, but they're they're kind of balanced, and and it's kind of a way of dealing with the problem of evil. I, I think the root of this religion maybe isn't an attempt to answer the problem of evil, and if you study this, there's there's many answers to the problem of evil. 
you know, some of them deal with free will. Some of them deal with kind of the reality of evil entities like the devil or in this case, Ahriman. Right. It's a way of you separate evil from God because you still want God to be fully good. So you separate evil and give it to another force. And often it's another kind of divine or, you know, a religious figure. And that that's what we have here in Zoroastrian. I'm not an expert on it. I'm just kind of giving you what I seem to recall about it. But Mead explains that the new town the town that they live in is actually the remain of this record god, Ahriman. And that's why everything is decayed and declining and, and kind of crappy compared to the original town. Mead then introduces Barton and Christopher to the Wanderers. And we learn that they're engaged in a conspiracy to restore the town in, in some way. So meanwhile, Peter goes over and studies Mary's dead body. Peter does not long relish his victory since he restored the park. Many of his golems that were active have been ungolemized by the change that's been going on in the park, the things that Christopher and, and Barton have been doing. But one of the golems explains to Peter that the ungolemed were those who entered the park. So by restoring the park, Ted Barton is able to take away Peter's power and, and apparently to also take away the power of Ahriman, the wrecker god. So the fact that the park's being restored means Mary's death is not that meaningful. It's not going to win the battle, that there's a bigger battle to be fought yet. And he would have to act. He would have to, Peter's going to have to do something bold to stop this gradual transformation of the town. And this is really where things set as we get to the climax of the novel, which I'll talk about in, in the next episode. Thematically, I don't know if there's much to add here. We have the same questions of urban planning and reconstruction, and now we kind of add to it the theme of restoration a little bit more. And then the big question is of the morality of going back to how things are. I mean, how do we undo the damage that urban transformation you know, brings? Yes, we can admit it destroys neighborhoods, it destroys communities, it destroys homes. It's destructive. Of course, it's sometimes a necessary destruction. I'm not saying it never needs to be done, but it's a destructive act and it has consequences. But that doesn't mean we, we need to go back to the old way. There has to be a better way to restore than just returning it. And because by returning it, you're just doing you're making the same mistakes again. And then I think we can add to this Zoroastrianism, religion in particular. Dick liked to play with religion a lot in his early stories and I've talked at length about those usually in those stories with a few exceptions religions are things that have materialistic answers like all the way back to like the skull where the the resurrection of Jesus is talked about it, not directly but there's it's, it's kind of clear he's talking about Jesus coming back from the dead it's explained with time travel right the, the existence of the Bible is explained in one story through sort of a time travel device too, and a, a time traveler so he wants to explain religion through these kind of materialistic means. In his novels, quite often, he's going to take more playful you know, ways of dealing with the divine and, and, relig and religion. And this is one that's going to do it. And of course, he's going to do it a lot in the late works too, like the Valis trilogy. So it's, it's something a little bit new here, that he's taking religion seriously as a plot device and not just as a an idea of something that needs to be explained through science fiction. 
so I guess that's all. There may be a few other themes here. I, there's a there's a point in the in this section that's a little bit uncomfortable where you have this Mary who's prepubescent getting taken off her clothes and you know he talks about her development in ways that might was certainly will strike some contemporary readers you know a little bit uncomfortably and there's going to be things in the last part of the novel too that are are a little bit disturbing in the way he just addresses it and deals with it because I mean I'll get to it in the next episode I'll, I'll try to find a, a sensitive a nice way to talk about it but there's a little bit here where you have this scene where she's trying on this kind of golem trying to be this golem and she's putting this kind of paint on her and she's naked and and she talks about how like she couldn't pull this off if she was a little bit more developed. It's a little bit weird um, for a contemporary reader to read. I don't know if it was more common to get this kind of stuff back in the 50s, but it doesn't seem right to me the way he addresses it and deals with it. So that's a little bit of caveat on this part of the novel. But anyways, that does it for part three of The Cosmic Puppets. I'll be back in the finale where I will discuss the final battle between the cosmic deities. We'll find out who everyone really is. We'll all, most, some, most, some of our questions will be answered in the final part of this novel. So again, thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I would really appreciate uh, hearing from you. Possess my tired thoughts once more. That living dies, that living dies, that living.